guys this weekend, we finished a series out of book two of Psalms last week. I'm going to have a short summer series that will start next month. This morning I'm doing a one-off and a couple things on the front end. Uh, Lots of information, and frankly, just to keep myself honest, I'm going to read most of my text, which I usually don't do, but there's so many permutations and so many places where we could go with this uh, that I'm going to be a little more strict with myself. Uh, What we'll do this morning is um, sort of the 30,000 feet view of some Old Testament history, some key uh, milestones, if you will, in the Old Testament. And also a look at some of the things Scripture says still lie before us and try to get some sense of where, where we're living today. And by doing that, to have a particular wisdom, if you will, for how do we, how do we live most faithfully? How do we bring our best game to the days God's given us on the earth? So I know that's quite vague, but this will pan out here in short order. So let me start. Humans are drawn to great stories. Think of the long epics like Homer or Tolkien, tales of great daring, dragons to be conquered, kingdoms to be won. And I think that's really hardwired into our psyches. I think there's a reason for that. This has been true of mankind as far back as history goes. But I think it's for this reason. Uh, You and I are living in a story somebody else wrote. We're living in an epic and God's written it. And sort of in our spiritual, mental, emotional DNA, we're wired for these grand stories. And you'll see themes from Scripture or the Homer-type epics or Tolkien's in story after story after story. And I think it's because whether we think of it consciously or not, we're living in the story God wrote. And so that's getting played out for us every day. When we read the Bible, we not only read about the world's origin, our beginnings, past tense, But we also read about the climax and the end of the story as well. We're reading in Scripture the future. God's written His story and He's written the future. It's future to us. We haven't lived it, but it's already penned. It's already written down. It hasn't happened. We haven't seen it or lived it, but God's already written the end of this long and winding tale. And what happens at the end? Well, we know the great enemy of old is vanquished. Those in the enemy's kingdom fall with him. And those who belong to the conquering king enjoy him and his grand kingdom forever. And again, that is sort of the big themes. You just see that in stories throughout history and throughout cultures. In broad theological terms, we say that God is sovereign. God can't write the future if he doesn't control the future. Scripture is unapologetic in saying that God is sovereign. And by that we mean that God is at work in and through all things such that his own purposes in the story he's already written will come to pass. He uses the glad and willing service of those who love him, hopefully that's us, as well as the efforts of those who hate him to move all things toward his predetermined ends. He uses the choices made out of glad submission as well as the willful choices born of enmity and sinful pride to accomplish his purposes. People that think they're living contrary to God and God's purposes are in fact, in that very moment they think that or say that, living, fulfilling God's desires. Here, just a few verses, I won't go through all of these, but these are on your study sheet. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Which of God's purposes will not be fulfilled? None of them. 
All of God's purposes will be fulfilled. Proverbs 16.4, God has made everything for a purpose. Who made everything? God made everything. Why did he make it? For his purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a person's heart. You and I may think of a great many things we want to do, we plan to do, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. It's not necessarily our plans. Our plans may or may not be connected to what happens. It's God's purposes that prevail. Isaiah 45, 4 through 7, Isaiah is speaking for God of Cyrus, the great Persian king, who's going to come a couple hundred years later. And he says in part, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, the eternal one. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And then last, and this really brings it to a point, because this gets to the end. So on one hand, we simply say out of these verses, God does whatever he wants. And anything he wants to do, he does. And no one can thwart his purposes. But this is the end to which it's all going, Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. Paul writes, for God, making known to us the mystery of his will. Remember, mystery is something we don't know unless God tells us. So in the past, we know God's moving a bunch of things forward, but where does it all end? Where is his story taking us? It's according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan. So God's storyline, his plot as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Remember, before the incarnation, Jesus is God, the son. He's not on earth the way you and I are. He has no physical presence here. Like we do, but nope, God's going to unite all things in heaven and on earth. He's the son of man. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. And this is the phrase who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What's God doing? He's working all things, no exception for the counsel of his will, his purposes and his purpose. He tells us here at the end, the end of the story is all things are subjected to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And that's where this grand story ends. That's where we're going. So when we look in scripture at this epic story, you're in. You're in it. Your role is in it. You're living in God's story right now. What we see is God is shepherding all things toward his own goals. So we're going to have a backward look, we'll have a current look, and we'll have a little bit of a future look here. Sometimes, sometimes God's shepherding all things towards his own purposes and the ends that Christ is all and in all. Sometimes towards that end, God cuts off the development of evil in catastrophic judgment, apparently because evil is otherwise advancing too quickly for his purposes. So sometimes you'll see in scripture and in history, there's this summary judgment and God stops something from proceeding. Other times we see God not cutting off evil in judgment, but allowing it to progress until it's reached its full flower in his timing, within his time frame, according to his plot line. Ultimately, in God's great story, he will allow evil to flourish with little restraint and in fact, with some divine help so that the fallenness of the heart of man is fully revealed. And in contrast, Jesus is seen in his glory along with his redeemed. So guys, some of what I'm saying this morning, I understand is the clear biblical teaching. 
It's not Mike making anything up. Scripture says, Scripture means. There's a few other things that I'm sharing that are Mike's opinions. These aren't written in stone. They're not in our statement of belief. And the other elders are not responsible for what I say. Okay? So these are my opinions. These are my, some of these are my opinions and judgments. And by the way, everyone's making judgments like I do. We're figuring out where are we, what's going on, what does it look like for me to live... Or simply saying, I don't know or I don't care, which is simply not a good way to live life in any stage, any era. So sometimes God stops the development of evil. Now you see this in spades in Genesis. So Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you know, three chapters, third chapter, mankind falls. He incurs spiritual death. You only go three more chapters to Genesis 6, and you have God cutting off mankind, the development of evil, because it's already reached a ridiculous point in three chapters in Genesis. So Genesis 6, and I'm mixing up the order of the verses here. Genesis 6, uh, starting at verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of his hearts was only evil continually. Verse 11, The earth was corrupt. That means it's rotten. That's not the physical earth, that's mankind, the world, the, the, we who populate the earth. The earth was corrupt, spoiled, rotten in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And one of the key descriptions of man's fallenness is our violence against each other. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So, verses 7 and 8, the Lord said, I'm going to blot man out. I created him, I'm going to blot him out from the face of the land. Man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, I'm sorry that I've made him, but Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. So God says at Genesis 6, guys, our story has just begun, and God says it's way too much, way too fast. I'm cutting it off now in judgment. I'm starting over. So the advance of evil, violence being one of the key markers, I'm cutting off in judgment. I'm going to start over with Noah and his descendants. You get five chapters further, you see a variation on the theme, Genesis 11, in the story of Babel. So, so Adam and Eve's descendants, evil only continually and violence. So Noah's descendants, you get to chapter 11, and we've got something along the same line. The whole earth, this is Genesis 11, 1 through 9, the whole earth had one language, so there's unity, use the same words, as people migrated from the east, they found the plain in the land of Shinar. They settled there, and they said to one another, by the way, this language harkens back to the creation account, come let us, come let us, they say twice, God will say later, come let us, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. We are going to identify ourselves. Remember, naming was authority. We take authority over ourselves. We're all that. God doesn't tell us who we are. We tell God who we are. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have one language. This is only the beginning of what they'll do. Nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. So now God says, Man said, Come let us. God says, Come let us. Go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. 
So, so conceive, think, what was God doing in this judgment? By multiplying languages and dispersing the people at Babel, God slowed the development of evil in the human race. The, the development is downward. It's descent. It's not towards God, even though they're building up. It's away from God. The desire of mankind at Babel wasn't to live in happy fellowship with their creator. It was rather to institute their own substitute identity in their own capital city and their own kingdom, all separate from God. And friends, what do you read at the end of the book? The story God's writing, what does mankind do in toto? He says to God, you're not God, we're God, and we'll do this our way. Thank you very much. So sometimes you look back in scripture, what did God do to shepherd all things towards his end? He cut the development of evil off in judgment. Some other times, though, he allows the development of evil. And of course, he's doing that every day, right? On one hand. But it's towards an end. It's in his timing. So in Genesis 15, the Lord has the covenant with Abraham. And he's making it. And he's telling him, hey, you're going to have a key son. And you're going to have lots of kids. And your kids are going to occupy the land I promised you. But he says, but here's the thing. It's not going to happen for four generations, 400 years. Your descendants aren't going to start here in the land you're in right now. They're going to serve a foreign king in a foreign country. But in 400 years, I'll bring them back. And listen to why he says there's this duration, this gap. For because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity, the sinfulness, the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. God says... I'm going to give your descendants this land, but I'm giving this people group 400 years before I cut them off in judgment through you. I'm giving them all this time. And of course, what's going to happen then, 400 years later, that's the Exodus account, Israel does come into the land of promise and, and God judges the Canaanites. Guys, the Canaanites were a horrendously violent and immoral people. And God says the judgment he's bringing, it's not flood, it's not language, but it's warfare. So he tells Israel, you go in and you either kill or displace all of the Canaanites so that the land is cleansed from their immorality and violence, and that's where you're going to settle. And he warns them throughout the book of the law, if you don't get rid of them, they'll corrupt you. So I want to start over, but I'm giving them all this time. I'm not bringing judgment on them yet. I'm giving them all this time. It wasn't time yet. So, <clears throat> excuse me. The iniquity of the people had been filled up 400 years later. It had come to its full flower and only then did God bring judgment. And you see something similar, by the way, of course, in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah later in Genesis 18 and 19. So... 30,000 foot view still since then, and we're, we're passing over all kinds of important things, of course, but just the big storyline. Since then, God the Son has come, redemption's been brought about, but big picture across the earth, God has given seasons and rain, food and gladness of heart as mankind has grown in number, spreading over the earth and increasing in knowledge and abilities. Mankind has continued to thrive under what we call God's common grace. And though evil has spread wherever we've set our feet, it's been restrained enough through conscience and government that we could flourish and with plenty of exceptions enjoy God's gifts of life and breath, family and friends. Think of the book of Proverbs, practical wisdom, enjoy life as we're given it. 
Like the Amorites, God is allowing the world, not just a culture, not just a small part that occupies a little bit of geography, God is allowing the world to ripen to its full God-rejecting flower. So sometimes God's shepherding towards his end in judgment. Sometimes, nope, he's, he's patiently, he's waiting things to develop at a slower pace. Uh, where is our story going? We're jumping fast forward, way, way, way ahead. So if you listen to Christian broadcasting of any stripe, if you go online, if you read any of the books on prophetic scripture, you'll know that there's a ton of divergent opinions about all kinds of specifics about prophetic issues related to the future. The number of the beast, who is he, where does he come from, is he Jewish, is he European, etc., etc., etc. So I'm avoiding all of that this morning because that's not actually where I want to go. I want to get to the end. But, but I do want to say this. The orthodox historic understanding of the prophetic scriptures of where this goes is that Jesus returns to the earth to establish God's kingdom. And that's not just Mike's opinion. When Jesus says, here's a model for your prayer. Here's a way to pray. Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, that's a prayer that Jesus comes to the earth in judgment to put down evil and to establish his kingdom. The kingdom of the Father is the kingdom of the Son. That's Psalm 2. Jesus is going to come down, put down all rebellion. That is Matthew 6. That is the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come. The Apostles' Creed early in the life of the church says in part... Jesus ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, from heaven, he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's been the standard of orthodoxy from the very early days of the church. Lion Lamb's statement of belief, very, very partial here, follows that same lead. Jesus currently sits in heaven at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for his own until he returns to rule the earth. So the story God has written ends with the institution of Jesus' kingdom first on the earth and then in the new heaven and new earth. Now, we say we read scripture and it tells us, you know, you read the histories, it tells us about Israel, it tells us mankind, etc. But, but there's a whole other set of scriptures that tell us what's coming. So, and we're not getting into any of these, by the way. Matthew 24, Luke 21, 2 Thessalonians 2, we'll read a short passage from Revelation 6 through 22 describe the culmination of man's rebellion against God, or we could say it this way, the full development or the full flower of man's attempt at a counterfeit kingdom in the rule of Antichrist, along with destructive conditions so fierce, Jesus says in Matthew 24, if God didn't cut them short, mankind would uh, consume himself, that there would be no human life left. Just as Israel chose murderous Barabbas over the Lord Jesus in his first coming, the world will choose the man of lawlessness, typically called the Antichrist, over the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Life in a coming day. The rule and reign will be ungodly and destructive, but will be put to an end when Jesus returns to judge the earth and establish his rule. God is sovereignly shepherding all history so that sin and rebellion are seen in all their violent, God-rejecting fullness and God is seen in Christ in the glories of his wisdom, judgment, and righteousness. So, we know where we've been, sort of under God's common grace. We know where we're at. We have a sense, big picture, of where we're going. So the question now is, 
Knowing how the story ends, where might we find ourselves in the plot line of God's story? What's your guess? If you say these things have been written by God, they're yet to come, how close are we? What does that look like? Where do I see myself in God's storyline? I'll say broadly, by the way, uh, I don't know and neither do you. And neither does anyone else with any kind of specificity, right? But my own sense, this is Mike's opinion, you can get the tomatoes ready. The world stage appears to be moving rapidly to conditions described in the prophetic scriptures. Mike's, Mike's own take is uh, we, are, we are on the threshold of the prophetic scriptures being fulfilled. That's my take. That's my opinion. But let me tell you sort of towards that end why that's my um, firmly held loose conviction. Luke 12 uh, this is also, you'll see in Matthew's gospel, though the language is a little different in some of the, uh, there's two verses in Matthew's gospel that are contested as far as the Greek manuscripts go. But in Luke's gospel, there's no conflict like that whatsoever. Luke 12, Jesus said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say it once, it's going to rain, and it rains. Uh, you see the south wind blowing and you say, it's going to be hot, and it's hot. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The phrase out of Matthew is uh, the signs of the times. That's the one that gets uh, bandied about a little bit more fully. But Jesus' point was this. And this is unique, at least in its setting. So the, there's a principle here, but it begins in a, something that was a very unique setting. So this is the setting. Jesus is saying, I've been here among you. I've claimed to be Messiah. My words are clear. I have attesting signs and wonders. And you're saying, you're not, you're not sure what to make of me. Well, this is ridiculous because he said, you guys know enough. You know, the weather changes all the time and we, we adjust our, what is it going to rain or shine? It adjusts all the time. But we say, well, I assume it's going to be hot because there's a south wind. Jesus' point is, if you say you can read the weather with any certainty, you have no excuse for saying you don't know what God's doing in this moment. You have no excuse for not knowing who I am or that my claims are legitimate. None at all. You're hypocrites. So here's the principle. Even if we don't know all the specifics, and we don't, there should be some sense in which those who follow God have a sense of what God's doing in the moment. That we, if we can read the weather, and we can, there should be some sense in which we can look and say, we think this is what God's up to today. So that's what I want to pursue here. <clears throat> what should we be able to see today? I am not saying that we know with any certainty when rapture or tribulation, second coming or deliverance will occur only that we should have some sense of what God is up to now and then compare that to some of the things God has said about the plot line, which is still future. Having done that, we can ask what living wisely in our own time might include. And that's how we'll conclude this morning, by the way. Here's, here's Mike's opinion on the big picture. God is judging the earth today, not by flood or the confusion of languages, but by giving mankind what mankind wants. And I'm not talking about the church. I'm not talking about Christians. I'm talking about the world system we live in. 
In contrast to past times of great violence and rebellion, and we are in times of great violence and rebellion, God doesn't appear to be slowing our collective descent into evil through judgment. Rather, his judgment appears to be to allow and confirm mankind's collective descent to evil as it proceeds towards the full flower of man's collective rebellion. Here's why this is my confusion. This is my uh, uh, assumption. Uh, violence. Violence was a key development. Uh, God cut short in the days of Noah. Matthew 24, 22, Jesus said, if God didn't sovereignly cut short the violence in the future, none of us would survive. We've seen more violence and death over the last hundred years, friends, than in all prior history. There's nothing in the history of the world that compares with the last hundred to 120 years. Two world wars, international, excuse me, internal national strife, ethnic cleansing, religious persecution, abortion, communism in the Soviet Union and China. Guys, we've intentionally, humans have intentionally killed hundreds of millions of fellow humans in the last hundred years. Hundreds of millions. There's nothing that compares with it in ancient history, period. God's judgment at Babel slowed the ability of mankind to cooperate together. So remember, at Babel, God stops it because God says nothing, uh, nothing will uh, keep them back. Anything they want to do because they're collective, God's image, creative, we've got minds, we're smart, nothing, uh, we can do anything we want. And God says, that's not a good thing because they're evil. So he slowed it down. But consider where that's at today. <clears throat> the spirit of Babel is alive and well again as mankind bands together in common cause to assert our autonomy. I'm not speaking here of, of nations banding together, though that will happen. Scripture says what I'm speaking here specifically is technology, science and technology. So consider, <clears throat> though we speak many languages still across the globe, you know, your phone can translate somebody who's speaking to you in real time. Language is not the dividing barrier it used to be. And also, with the computer age, people from all across the world can cooperate <clears throat> excuse me, on the same projects because of computers. So the effects of the confusion of language at Babel has been greatly diminished by our technology and science. We're told not long before the world's greatest time of trouble that travel and knowledge will increase notably, Daniel 12.4. Uh, the Wright brothers were 100 years ago and, and small change. We can travel at supersonic speeds, put men in space and on the moon. By the way, we're trying to get to Mars now. We're trying to plant humans on Mars as well. We've delved deeply into the knowledge of just about everything from the building blocks of our own DNA to galaxies in the farthest reaches of space. Knowledge has increased. In fact, they'll tell you, it's kind of like in computers, your chip, it doesn't double, it quadruples and... I can't remember what we call that mathematically, but that's what's happened to our knowledge base as well. Scripture describes a future time when the ability to buy and sell is notably restricted. Revelation 13, verses 16 and 17. The development and implementation of digital currencies, which is coming. And guys, it's just a matter of, of it's not if, it's when. Digital currencies will provide the ability to control who buys and sells. You'll be, you'll be able to be restricted through digital currency. But also, facial recognition around the world. Governments, now especially in China, but it's not just China, they can recognize faces. People will be tracked. They'll know where you are. They'll know what you're buying. That sounds like Revelation 13. That technology is here today. One of the key elements regarding approaching the climax of God's great story 
And frankly, this is my biggest one, not the other ones, not the technology. This will sound per perhaps simplistic to you, but for me, this is the most profound one. It's tied to truth and lies. Jesus said Satan is the father of lies, John 8, 44, that when he lies, he's simply speaking out of who and what he is. The Antichrist will be empowered by the father of lies. His will be a kingdom and a reign of lies. The proliferation of lying as a way of life appears to be on a steep rise upward, and there is spiritual satanic power behind at least part of such a trend. <clears throat> Sometimes when Kathy and I speak about one thing or another, my phrase is, let's get over getting over. Let's get over getting over, meaning let's quit being surprised at something that shouldn't surprise us anymore. How often are you listening to the news and you, you guffaw over what someone just said that you know is a lie, but, but they just keep doing it. This has become the, the coin of the realm. 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul, for God, writes, the Spirit expressly says, this, this is, you can count on this. In the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And we say at the end of the day, guys, truth is spiritually understood. Truth is spiritually apprehended. People can be deceived spiritually and they don't know what's true and what isn't true. This is especially true here in 1 Timothy regarding claims by false Christs, false religions, but uh, truth is going to fall by the wayside and there's power behind it. If you look at other religions of the world and you say, how can they believe that? Because there's spiritual power behind it. Because it's not just a matter of logic and it's not just a matter of that doesn't make sense or it does make sense. It's because there's spiritual power behind truth claims made around the world, not just now, but of course historically as well. The Apostle Paul describes conditions when Antichrist appears as a time when truth is rejected in favor of lies. A time when God confirms mankind's desire for lies by sending to the earth, this is God, strong delusion so that man can have in full what he's chosen in part, and that is lies, life by way of lies. This is 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians is a book that does not get enough play. This is 2 Thessalonians 2. Chapter 1 describes the second coming. Chapter 2 describes in part what's going to happen before the second coming. Verses 9 through 12, the coming of the lawless one, that's the guy we call Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan. So he has spiritual power with all power and false signs and wonders. They are pseudo signs and wonders. They look legit though. And with all wicked deceptions, everything's about deception and lies, for those who are perishing. So, those who are perishing are going to take in the deception and the lies because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So to this future generation, or maybe it's our generation, I don't know, God says, you want lies, you shall have lies. You don't want the truth, you won't have the truth. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. This isn't satanic. This is a judicial judgment by God. God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. 
in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. By the way, this isn't the first time that you see this from heaven. Exodus 3, God's treatment of Pharaoh is the same thing. 1 Kings 22, King Ahab is the same thing also. If there's a single element for me that gives me pause regarding the time in history we occupy, it's the abandonment of truth, both in its particulars and as a concept, as a fundamental foundational concept. Examples. Politics has always been a dirty business. Truth is massaged and shaped one way or another. We want certain legislation, etc. But what we're seeing now is simply lies repeated time after time after time with no explanation and no attempt to defend. It was communist leader Vladimir Lenin as well as Adolf Hitler both uh, are credited with the statement, a lie told often enough becomes the truth. And that appears to be the new norm. Don't explain, don't defend, state the lie, restate the lie, restate it until it's accepted. Legacy news mediums, that would include print, television, online reporting outlets, make no pretense at objectivity, but have been reduced to advocacy outlets for all things contrary to godliness. This is why you have to be so careful. By the way, what are we taking in? Do you, do you have any, any means of saying, I think that's false or I think that's true? Because, guys, the, the people that we pay attention to, they affect what we think. And if all you get is legacy news media, you have no idea what's going on in the world. None. All you know is what's being fed, intentionally dece deceiving. It's the attempt to reshape reality in the cause of politically and socially liberal agendas. Now, this shouldn't surprise Christians if we say we know where the world's going. World cultures are now calling men women and women men, boys girls and girls boys, as if by our own volition we create reality. Friends, that is the temptation in the Garden of Eden. You shall be as gods. That is Babel. We'll make our own name. We'll define who we are. God doesn't define me. Also, this is true of professing Christians around the world as well. Uh, professing churches around the world are going along with all of this. We'll, we'll name ourselves as well. So they're not only widely held, but they're held within uh, elements of uh, groups that used to say they believed God in the Bible. 2 Timothy uh, 3 says this. So what does it look like? So as we're going towards those prophetic times, what does it look like? 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, Paul says, understand this, in the last days there will be times of difficulty for people will be. What, what will it look like? What will your neighbors and mine look like? He says, well, people will be lovers of self. And that's a key generalization. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and holy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, love, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's where the world is going. And I just say that we're seeing elements of that today. Nations that used to find their collective identity in the Christian faith have thrown off that guiding light for agnosticism, atheism, and communism. And Christians are routinely persecuted often, this is true here in the States, as you all know, through legal and bureaucratic means, sometimes by direct interference and violence. Whether Jesus is about to call to his church in the rapture 
or the hoofbeats of the second coming can be heard or not, we want to have a clear understanding of the moment we live in so that we can be as wise as possible with God's call on our lives and his church. In August of 2021, we talked about emergency preparedness as simply a wisdom issue out of Proverbs 6. The ant is smart enough to make provision for things ahead. We should be as smart as the ant. We said so simply because you remember in the COVID interruption, supply chains, the toilet paper's gone, you can't buy enough eggs, fuel prices rise, industry shuts down, et cetera, et cetera. We said, you know, we should count on things like this. We should have a modicum of wisdom, at least like the ant. Well, today I want to consider some of the ways we might be more fully prepared for the current and future challenges that do lie ahead, only a question of when. Uh, Some of these, by the way, in fact, most of these save a couple. Friends, these would simply be things you and I should be doing any day, every day, in any time, in any place we live. First, what should we be doing? I want to start with a negative. What we don't do, we don't, we don't do nothing. We don't do nothing. That, you remember double negatives, right? So we do something. Okay. We don't join those who sat on hills waiting for Jesus to return. Friends, this wasn't just the Millerites in the mid-1800s. This was the Thessalonians when Paul was there telling them, get off your backsides and go back to work. If you don't work, you don't eat because that's what they were doing. Jesus is coming. We'll quit our day jobs or not. We don't act as if every day doesn't matter because we think our final day is soon. By the way, this would be true. If I'm dying of a terminal disease, I still owe all my days and all my time to God. I'm not off the clock. If I'm breathing on earth, I'm on the clock. I'm a steward of God's time, the time he's given me. We don't stop investing in the lives of others as those who God has called to love him and love others. We continue loving God and loving others. We don't stop doing the thousand things that are simply part of everyday living. We don't stop living faithfully for Christ every day. So we don't do nothing. Here are my seven suggestions about what we should do. The first is get our own house in order. Get our own house in order. Friends, the passage, I think it's Ezekiel 9, when God is bringing judgment upon the world and his people, it's a graphic passage, you should read it, go home and read it, there's an angel, and, and an angel is meant to go out, and he says, and I want you to record the names before judgment begins of all the people who moan and sigh and weep over the sins of what's going on in my covenant people. And then the angel who's bringing judgment is going to follow. And he doesn't start in Babylon, and he doesn't start among the Canaanites or the Edomites. You know where he starts? He starts at the temple. And 1 Peter 4 brings up this when it says, it's time for judgment to begin. And guess where it begins? It begins in the household of God. He doesn't start in the world. It begins with us. It begins with his church and his covenant people. So if we even have a hint that the storm clouds are starting on these challenging times, and I think they are, then we ought to be ready for personal judgment, corporate judgment. We should be in a place where we know we're giving account to God. What does that look like? The big thing is we've got to get rid of sin. What are, what are the sins that we're playing with? What are the sins we're entertaining? What are the ways in which we know we aren't honoring God, but we've somehow made allowance for it? Remember Jesus says in the Gospels, you know, if your hand uh, leads you to sin, cut it off. If your eye 
gouged out. And he's not saying, literally, it's hyperbola. We get that. But he is saying be ruthless. And guys, this is the thing. I've entertained sin in my life in all kinds of ways. Sorry, honey. You didn't know that. <laughs> in all kinds of ways. Little ways. Do you know what I'm saying? Angry words, angry attitudes, you name it, lust, just go through the list. Well, what you realize over time, and, and uh, you realize that Scripture is true, that sin is never worth it, and that sin always brings death. And so the more we know that, the more we embrace that, the more we're willing to say, I don't want to sin, Lord. I don't want the pleasure of the moment is not worth the cost and the pain that follows. I don't want to speak angry words. I don't want to have a condemning attitude. I want to do right. Sin's not worth it. We should be getting rid of sin. We should be living by the Spirit's power in the moment for God's glory. That's where we should be doing. Uh, get, get out of unwise debt. This is always true again. Most of these are true anytime, place. Get out of unwise debt. The second one is be prepared to suffer. 1 Peter 4.1 Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Uh, um, I believe... So this is Mike's opinion again. This is not part of the church's statement of belief. I believe in what's called dispensationalism. And by that briefly, I simply mean that the promises God made to Israel, he will keep to Israel. And that therefore the church will be called out of this earth, 1 Thessalonians 4, before the last seven year period of Daniel's prophecies of 77s is fulfilled. And when you read Revelation 6 through 20 uh, through 19, you know it's all predicated on elements of three and a half years because it's a seven-year period. I believe the church is called out. Now, let me tell you something. In discussions that you'll have with people who don't hold that view, here's the critique. Those people who hold that view simply want to escape tribulation and trouble and suffering. That is, they believe something because they want something. And I'm here to tell you, anybody that says we escape persecution because the church is raptured, you're deceived. And you're deceived for this reason, because all Christians are told they'll suffer persecution. And you can travel the world today. If you go to the saints suffering in China, North Korea, Africa, and tell them, don't worry, you escape suffering in the tribulation. How much peace do you think that brings to their heart? They're suffering today. They're suffering today. This is, simple, this is predicated on, on theology, not on I hope to get out of here. You're going to suffer one way or another on planet Earth. It's only a degree, a question of degree. So we need to be prepared to suffer. And this is true. We've talked about this as a church, by the way, repeatedly and not all that long ago. And out of Peter. It comes through spades in Peter. Remember, Peter is, uh, tradition has it, crucified upside down. Uh, all the apostles but one died a martyr's death. Uh, read in reliance on the Holy Spirit. You know what we should be reading? We should be reading our Bible. You guys are so good. We should be reading our Bible. Friends, the Bible, it's the gold standard, right? It's the truth. It's the wisdom you and I need to live anytime, any place. If we're not reading our Bibles, uh, please remember your mind is always being influenced. It's only a question of by whom, towards what end. If you're not reading your Bible, you are being deceived. Don't say, you know, deception. Do you know when you're being deceived? You don't, by definition, or you wouldn't believe it. 
If we don't have the truth of God's word, we can't recognize when someone's tempting us with a lie. You need the truth of God's word. Now, in a timely way, I want to suggest you read two other books. Live Not by Lies by Rod Dreher. I recommended this a couple years ago. The reason is this. It's simply a description of how the, the church in East Europe uh, survived and thrived when the Soviet communists came in. And the deal was, everything was about lies. Everything was about manipulation. Everything was about coercion. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who grew up under that in the Soviet Union, said, refuse to live by lies. Don't live by lies. Well, Dreer's book shows what that looked like and how we lived that out. To, to recognize lies. And guys, this is in small ways. This doesn't start with somebody saying reject Christ or die. This starts in a million small ways. Am I willing to go along with the lie? By the way, there's uh, especially school teachers. School teachers around the country are being fired because they won't tell a lie. You know what the lie is? They won't say that young woman is a, is a young man. They won't say that young man is a young woman. They're losing their jobs. And, they're and these guys in courts are losing. But they're saying we're not going to tell a lie. We're not going to live by lies. The other one, and this may sound strange, is science fiction. Woo, science fiction. It's C.S. Lewis's, it's the third of his uh, space trilogy. It's called That Hideous Strength. And guys, here's the thing about this book. Lewis was so prescient. You know, he was writing in the 40s and 50s. And if you read this book, you'll realize how prescient he was on what the manipulation of the masses might look like by those who have nefarious goals and means. It's a, it's a riveting book. It's one of my family's favorites, that hideous strength. You don't have to read the two books in front of it to know what's going on. It's like, well, that might, might be what it's like. Here's one example. Uh, a guy who wants to be all that in the inner ring, the inner circle of people he thinks are uh, well-placed. Uh, the woman tells him, okay, uh, we're going to write a story about the riot that's going to happen tomorrow. And he says, well, what do you mean? You can't write about the riot if it's tomorrow. And she says, no, you don't understand. We start the riot. We quell the riot. We've written about it beforehand. Oh, okay. So that the people that appear to be the, simply the reporters of the news know they're the ones they're making the news. And then they write about it as it suits their purposes and their goals. It's a very prescient book. Share the Gospel, number four, Philippians 2. Guys, in the world you and I inhabit, it says the race of men, they're like bent creatures. They're bent over. They're stooped morally. Christians are meant to be standing straight upright with integrity. And as they do in this dark world, they're supposed to hold on to and hold out the word of life. And that's the gospel for the world. Christians should continue to be sharing the gospel with all the opportunities God gives us. We need to be praying, Matthew 26, 41. You know, as the disciples... They're going into that night when Jesus is uh, on the Mount of Olives. And he says to them, uh, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Luke's gospel says the same thing. Watch and pray. First Thessalonians 5 says, uh, be alert. Be alert for prayer. When we pray, we're not just asking God to do things for us or for someone else. Guys, we're drawing near to God. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you see things because God's drawing you into his fellowship and that itself is light and life. We need to pray. 
Uh, we need to do all the good we can with the time we're given. Ephesians 5.16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. You and I are stewards. We give an account for our time. Paul says, redeem the time, buy them up, use them for Christ's cause and God's glory because the days are evil. That was true then. It's true today. And last, encourage each other. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage and build up one another. He says, as in fact you are doing. So, even if you don't agree with any of Mike's opinions on where we're at, Scripture's clear on where we're going, and all of these things save two book recommendations would be true for you on any day of your life, any place you lived. God has written a great epic story. It's being lived out even today. The story is meant to heap praise and honor on God the Son so that God the Son can turn praise, worship, and worshipers to God the Father the Holy Spirit effectively bringing all this to pass. Friends, this is our story. This is our time. So let's live it to the full. Done. Okay, please rise and let's uh, read together from Luke's Gospel. Read with me, please. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third,